This podcast is sponsored by the Davenant Institute, online at davenantinstitute.org. Hear more at the conclusion of today's program. Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count, with Carl Truman and Todd Pruitt. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Welcome to Mortification of Spin. My name's Carl Truman, Professor of Biblical and Religious Studies at Grove City College in beautiful Western Pennsylvania. Normally, I'm here with my friend and co-host, the Reverend Todd Pruitt, pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Harrisonburg, Virginia. But Todd is uh, unavailable today due to pastoral duties. And so I'm going to be flying solo with our guest. Uh, My guest is the, the Reverend Peter Sanlin. He's pastor of an Anglican church in the United Kingdom, and Peter and I have been friends for some years. Uh, good to have you on the show, Peter. Thank you very much, Carl. Yes, I uh, first met you when I was a university student back in Oxford in 1998, inviting you to come and do little theology talks for us uh, eager young theology students. I remember that. I remember that at uh, Wycliffe Hall, I think you were at the time. That's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And we had dinner that night at Christchurch College. Uh, in the hall, of course, that became the, the basis for the Harry Potter movies, I think, in, in the dinners there. so We yeah. pulled out all the stops for you when you visited, yes. <laughs> yes. Sadly, you're on the program today to talk about a much more somber and sad mm. subject. Many of our listeners in the U- United States of America will be familiar with the, the recent Ravi Zacharias disaster over here. Well, in the United Kingdom, uh, uh, a, a similar, not, not a parallel, but a similarly disastrous situation has been emerging really over the last few years uh, surrounding a a very prominent uh, Anglican minister, uh, the Reverend Jonathan Fletcher. It's hard, I think, for Americans to grasp the significance of the the downfall of Jonathan Fletcher because Britain, England in particular, is a very small country and our evangelical organizations in Britain are all interlinked and run by more or less the, the same group of people. And among that set, Jonathan Fletcher was a giant. I remember when he came to preach at Cambridge when I was an undergraduate there. I, I think it was John Maynard Keynes who said that when, when Wittgenstein, Ludwig Wittgenstein, arrived back in Cambridge around about 1929, uh, Maynard Keynes was said to have said, God has arrived in Cambridge. And when Jonathan Fletcher came to town, he was huge. Uh, he was a massive, influential presence within the students' evangelical world and within the English evangelical world. He has been described as a man who wielded more power than any bishop in the Church of England. And I don't think that is an exaggeration. And yet, over the last few years, a number of allegations emerged that have now been investigated and and found to be quite cogent, uh, that 
Jonathan Fletcher used his position as minister to to abuse people. He abused his power. He abused many of the people who were under him and who looked to him and who trusted him for leadership. And this is something that is going to have huge consequences in the English evangelical world, precisely because Jonathan Fletcher had his fingers in, we might say, in so many evangelical pies over there. So I've asked my friend Peter Sandlin to come on the program today to try to explain some of the context for this to an American audience, but more than that, to, to move beyond the blame game, so to speak, and to think about how the church can best care for victims in these situations, and how the church can think about how to prevent this kind of thing happening again. So, Pete, I'm glad you've been willing to join me today to discuss this. It's great to have you on. I wish it was in happier circumstances. Perhaps my first question should be, uh, what's happening to the victims in this? You know, often we tend to focus on the perpetrator. But the first question that I want to ask is, what's being done to help the victims? What sort of support networks are being put in place for the people who've been deeply damaged and traumatized by Jonathan Fletcher's behavior? Yeah, it's absolutely right. The victims need to be front and center. And I think the first thing I'd say is that it's pretty obvious from reading the review that was published two days ago from the Safeguarding Charity 318 about Fletcher. It's pretty obvious that there must be many, many other victims out there who have not told anybody, have not sought any help. And, and I would just appeal to those people in particular to make use of some of the uh, opportunities for help and support that are being put together and being made available. Uh, the church that's at the center of this abuse scandal um, has set up a website, uh, Walking With website, and through that it's possible to get in touch with um, resources and funding and finance for counseling, um, all in a way that's completely anonymous. You know, that, that church which is paying for it would not know who you were um, and uh, the Safeguarding Charity 31E at their website. Again, I think Carl will make sure that those websites are on their uh, their podcast. That That's a good way to get in touch with some help. Um, but, I, you know, I had, I had a call from a victim just before we had this show and being recorded. And, you know, nobody had contacted that person today at all, just two days after the review came out. So I think if a victim comes forward to you and seeks support and help, I think you have to sort of open your heart and your life to have an ongoing availability of friendship and support and conversation. It's, it's not like every conversation has to be a big, heavy discussion about the stuff that's gone on in the past. Just knowing that you're available, the, the beautiful things in New Testament Christianity, you know, loving one another, bearing one another's burdens, those, those things do mean a lot. And, and uh, I think it's something I didn't mention in my introduction, actually, but I should say that the the victims, certainly the ones that I read about in, in the report, they're all adults. And there's a sense, I think, in which adults who are victims can feel perhaps even more shame, and more difficulty about coming forward because the obvious and, and, and cruel response is, well, you're, you're a big boy, you're a big girl, you, you should have stood up for yourself. But that's not how it works in these situations when you have such a dominant figure. Uh, the fact that you're an adult doesn't prevent you from being uh, an unfortunate, hapless, terrible victim of this kind of thing. Yeah. And the other complexity is that because Jonathan Fletcher's abuse occurred in a situation where he was the patriarch and the one at the center of training people for ministry, 
and selecting and encouraging young men to go into Christian ministry and then helping them get jobs as ministers in churches around the country. Um, many of the victims are actually involved in church ministry, and, and that adds further levels of trauma and, and complexity to the whole situation. And I think the review itself makes clear that even the victims that contributed to, to the review are all in very different places of, of understanding that and, and, and being supported in that. Yeah, and I think that so the, the the overall sort of burden here is if you're a victim, if you feel you've been a victim, then please seek help. Help is there and available to you. There is no shame in being a victim. Uh, you need to seek help and, and find somebody who can give you, as Pete said, that that love and that care that you need to to come to terms with with what has been done to you. Another aspect uh, of this, Peter, is, of course, that it, it arises in a very distinctively English culture. You know, one of the things I've often tried to press on students in my classes in America that it's hard for them to understand is class. The class structure, particularly of England, is very formative of a lot, certainly a lot of what went on for people of my generation and older than me. Maybe breaking down now, I don't know. But the problem emerged in in a very what we call public school context. Now, for our American listeners, when I say public school and I mean England, I'm talking about very, very elite private schools. Eton, Harrow, you may have heard of, Winchester, Sherborne. These are public schools. And the evangelicalism from which Jonathan uh, Fletcher emerged and within which he operated is really dominated by a bunch of guys who all went to the same schools. Is that fair to say, Peter? And and how, how yes. do you think that has played out in this? Yes. So there are lessons for American listeners from this particular abuse scandal. But in order to learn them, you have to sort of step out of your culture and, and explore what is actually quite an alien world. And, and the first component of that alien world is the English public schools, as they're called. And particularly we're interested here in the, in the top 10 or so of the most elite of those public schools. Uh, not only are they very expensive to go to, you know, tens of thousands of pounds paid, you know, there's also a, a class cachet to them. Now that was, that was even stronger in the 60s, 70s and 80s when some of this abuse was beginning. But what are the public schools in England? They're best understood by seeing the history of growing out of Victorian England uh, designed to break a boy and rebuild him in the image of the perfect English gentleman. Uh, such an English gentleman would be painfully polite, um, would be discreet, would be loyal to his friends and institutions to a fault, would be highly skilled at navigating social situations and achieving organisational power and would have a confidence which is incredibly overpowering to anybody else that encounters it, a sense that one is born to rule. And, and actually, that type of English gentleman was achieved, you know, and, and was part, a key part of running the British Empire. Such a person was fit to be an MP, an army captain, um, a civil servant in Africa, organising a country. You know, it, it worked incredibly well in a sense, but... Just in the last few years, there's been a lot of psychological studies done on what does it really do to a child to remove them from their parents' age eight, 
and put them in a boarding school with very strong rules and structures and to tell them that you're being taken away from your family and sent to this school and you are lucky to have this privileged upbringing and it's for your good. And, and what's been discovered by people like uh, Nick Duffel, for example, who's written an amazing book called The Making of Them, um, a study of the psychological impact of boarding school experience. The cost of creating the English gentleman like that is actually very traumatizing. You know, there's a there's a dislocation um, and an ability to sort of live a double life um, and, and a sense in which the, the childlike person who's sent off to boarding school aged eight is sort of frozen and traumatized. And as they grow up, not able to navigate many of the emotional things that that, that normal leadership really needs. And the crucial thing, of course, is that the boarding schools of England were the place where discipline was used. There was physical, corporal, the use of a cane to beat the boys. Uh, sometimes prefects beating younger boys, um, certainly teachers, tutors beating the boys. And there are many records um, in books and biographies of just how brutal and barbaric that was in the 1970s and the 80s. And let's not forget that the cane in these public schools was not made illegal in England until 1999. And to put that in context for your American listeners, that was the year Britney Spears came into the charts to play music. Not that long ago. So in that context, Jonathan Fletcher was at school at Repton, um, known at the time as the most abusive and violent school in England. And, and he was formed there psychologically, spiritually, and that had consequences, I think, for how things played out. Yeah. And also, of course, as you alluded to in, in, in an early part of that statement, team loyalty. These guys yeah. are ultimately loyal to the team. And I was at Cambridge in the 80s. I came from a state grammar school like you did. We, we had the cane as it happened, but it was not frequently used. But I went to a state grammar school and it was interesting for me at Cambridge to be in a world dominated by public school boys and to realise I didn't belong. You were sort of uh, tolerated would be a rather negative way of putting it, but you, you were there. But you were aware that the key organizations on campus and the key Christian organizations on campus were in the hands of the public school boys. And it's, it's interesting that the guys who, who ran the Christian Union uh, in my day in Cambridge in the 1980s went on to run English evangelicalism in the decades since then, the same names, many of them good guys. It's not a criticism of them at all. It's simply an observation that, that England's run by an Oxbridge mafia, and that includes evangelicalism on the whole, or Anglican evangelicalism, nonconformity, Baptist, etc. a little different. Um, but now let's get to the specifics uh, of Jonathan Fletcher, because the Fletcher case was, did not emerge in a vacuum. Uh, it emerged yeah. against the background of a very disturbing case, that of the English barrister John Smythe, who was involved in these same, they call Ewan Minster camps, these very elite public school Christian camps, which were essentially the training ground for the evangelical officer class. You know, John Stott was an alumnus of the Ewan, Ewan Minster's. Dick Lucas would be an alumnus of the Ewan, Ewan Minster camps. These were the, the training camps of the future 
elite leaders of evangelicalism. And this John Smythe character, tell us something about his very disturbing yeah. story. Yes. So um, the the second component of the background is that that um, a man called Nash, whose nickname was Bash, and it's never really been explained why he had that nickname, but there's obvious links to the discipline of the public schools. He decided he wanted to bring the gospel to England through converting the boys of the great public schools. And therefore he set up these camps called the Ewan camps, as they were known, because they met in a town called Ewan, meeting in a big school there over the summer holidays. And the idea was that you would sort of make the camps be like boarding school. So you would, you know, if you think about it, you've got a very specific elitist, small subsection of English culture. And in order to sort of bring the gospel to it, you have, well, best way you put it, contextualized. But, but perhaps what happened was that culture, including some of the bad parts of it, were sort of just repeated in the bash camp system and sort of baptized with a veneer of some Christian words. And that certainly wasn't the case for all of the leaders by any stretch, but this man called John Smythe, um, it certainly was the case. So John Smythe was, was born in 1941 in Canada, actually, but in England uh, where he lived, he eventually became a very uh, influential lawyer um, a Queen's Council, a very prestigious position, um, led some very prominent post uh, cases in England, um, standing up for ethical moral issues, he became a lay reader in the Church of England, which made him sort of respectable to the establishment of the church. And uh, Bash, who, who led John Stott to Christ, appointed uh, John Smythe uh, to be a leader at the Ewan camps in the early 1960s. By 1981, he was the chair of the entire organization. So he was leading the whole thing. And in 1982, it came out that he was, there's no other way to put this, he was torturing uh, the boys and the young men um, as part of this work that he was doing. He was, he was subjecting them to canings that went on for hours. Is that correct to say, Peter? That's right. So one one of the, I mean, I've become friends with some of the victims over the last couple of years and one of the delightful, lovely, kind-hearted, sweet men that it's been a privilege to become a friend of and to know a bit, um, he, he suffered a 10-hour session of being caned by John Smythe. Um, that, that session happened um, on the last day of a Ewan camp. And, you know, the sort of assault that you're talking about there is the type of thing when I hear about it, I think if that was me receiving that, I, I might have died. Yeah, it, it's, you know, it sounds like a death sentence. I mean, that's how yeah. brutal this was. Yeah. But what was he doing with this? You know, he... He was telling these men that this is what Jesus wants for you, that, that me doing this for you will help you to become a, an elite super Christian minister in the Church of England. And um, he was getting them to confess their sins to him and then punishing them for it. Um, and actually, it, it got to a point then, having, having done this with a number of boys under the age of majority at Winchester College, one of the elite public schools in England, having done it with a small group of boys, when they went off to the universities around the country, he would get on a train and meet them and do it again there at the university. And then they would be encouraged to get their friends in the Christian union to join in. And it spread out across the country. And 
So what you end up with today, you know, this is stuff that was going on back in the 70s and the 80s. But what you end up with today is numbers of UN-trained, elite, highly respected church ministers around England who were involved in what, when you hear about it, you would say is not Christianity, but but is a sadomasochistic cult. And an important point to make there is when the victim also becomes an abuser, the the circle uh, is sort of closed at that point, that it then becomes difficult for victims to come forward because if they feel that they too have been abusers, they have a vested interest in keeping their mouths shut. So this is very clever and manipulative kind of abuse. Some of the boys were then trained and encouraged and forced to to beat yeah, one another. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that all came, it came to light in a, in, a, in a limited way in 1982 when one of the boys, young men, sorry, at that point he was a university student by this point, and he, um, he, 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 he tried to commit suicide rather than face another mm. beating. Uh, and that prompted a bit of a panic throughout the leadership of Ewan. They investigated it. They wrote a report, which is available online to read, explaining that it was criminal, it was horrific, it was terrible. Um, but instead of reporting to the police, they asked John Smythe to stop doing it, and um, and he didn't. So a couple of years later, they said, you need to leave the country and go to Africa. So they carted him off to uh, Zimbabwe, where he set up camps for boys and began to do it more and more, worse than he'd done in England, leading to the death of two boys and horrific consequences. And the fact that it got to Zimbabwe, you can connect the dots on the establishment there. You know, this is, uh, it's, a, it's a kind of rat line kind of thing that we're seeing. How does this connect to Fletcher? Yeah. Let's, let's zero in then on, on yes, Fletcher. To bring it all back, just two days ago, uh, a, safeguarding report, or a safeguarding report was you know, published on Jonathan Fletcher. What has all this got to do with Jonathan Fletcher? Well, Jonathan Fletcher was one year apart from John Smythe in age. And Jonathan Fletcher was on the UN camps and there were very close links. So um, I have permission from one of the victims to share with you a quote, which has not been shared in public before, but is very, very significant. Um, one of the victims of John Smythe, Andy Morse, told me in an interview that um, he, he's, a, he's, an, he's an openly known uh, victim of John Smythe. He's talked to the media many times. He said to me, quote, back in the 1980s, John Smythe, my abuser, warned me to stay away from Jonathan Fletcher because he was an abuser. So in an ironic way, I was saved from Jonathan Fletcher by John Smythe. That is deeply disturbing and concerning. You know, it, it shows that, you know, at least some of John Smythe's victims knew about Jonathan Fletcher you know, it was talked about in, in groups on the camps back in the 1980s. And, and it means that there were these two men. Now, Jonathan Fletcher in the review seems to have done not as severe physical beatings, but certainly beatings. There's been other forms of abuse that have been very, very serious. Um, but the thing is, John Smythe was sent off to Africa, where he continued the abuse. And Jonathan Fletcher remained in England right at the heart of the conservative evangelical constituency. Many, many people who knew about the John Smythe abuse continued to welcome Jonathan Fletcher to speak in their churches, to lead weekends away, to mentor young men. 
And we now see that for 40 years, uh, a version of horrific abuse was going on right at the heart of conservative evangelicalism. So John Fletcher was the co-founder of the Proclamation Trust, which has trained many, many um, church leaders and ministers in how to preach. And, you know, many of the largest and most significant and influential churches in England, whether they realize it or not, run their churches in ways that are principally shaped and designed by by the methods that Jonathan Fletcher used to hide his abuse. Mm. All of this is very disturbing, Peter. I wonder if, um, you know, sadly, of course, that the stories of abusive pastors, they just pile up these days. Questions about the way forward. These are more, more complicated. Um, on one level, Jonathan Fletcher's victims, these were these were boys from boarding schools. They, 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 were, uh, they were taken away from their families and their homes. They were sort of isolated in a way. They were prime targets for this kind of stuff. It's, it's important to say one thing, uh, uh, Carl. Um, while John Smythe's victims were certainly that, Jonathan Fletcher's, of course, emanated through the ministry structures that had been established. In okay. So many of his victims were sort of not necessarily something in the boarding school culture, but for example, oh. somebody who'd been doing a ministry training scheme that was linked to his church. Okay. And things okay. like that. So in a sense, Jonathan Fletcher's position at the heart of Church of England conservative evangelicalism gave him a sort of a hunting ground that was, yeah. that was slightly yeah. different. Yeah. yeah. Did the families know about this, by the way? I mean, particularly with Smythe, I'm thinking Smythe's dealing with younger boys. It's one thing when, when you're abusing adults, but what are younger boys did with a family? I mean, one of my sons came back from camp after a 10-hour beating. I suspect I'd see some physical signs of it. I know, I know, I know. Well, well, yes, I mean, some of these boys had to wear nappies for, for, for days. And weeks oh, after. gosh. I mean, it was, it was horrendous. Um, so um, only, literally only today, the 25th of March, um, a further review into John Smiles has been published, which reveals, shockingly, that, that his abuse did include the abuse of... of of children under the age of majority, as well as young men and adults. Um, and it's always been said in Christian circles in England that it wasn't reported to the police because the parents didn't want it. Many, many church ministers have said that to me and to others. But but having spoken to some of the victims, um, I know that actually the leaders of you and the conservative church ministers didn't tell all the parents and pressure was exerted on the parents to not go to the police. And that is in the review today as yeah, well. Yeah, so I think yeah. some of the parents um, were greatly saddened right to their gravesides that, yeah, that they yeah. were not able to, to deal with this. And part of the reason was because the UN camp leaders did not give them the information they needed. Um, yeah. And yeah. it has to be said, you know, these are very powerful men. You know, Jonathan Fletcher was a member of that very elite dining club. I can't remember what, you know, it has a limited number of people. I mean, these are cabinet minister, you know, we're dealing with cabinet minister kind of level uh, elite establishment here. So these are very powerful men who could certainly present as being able to make life very, very difficult for, yeah. for ordinary people. You ask about the future. Yeah. On the way forward. I think we must, must do that. I think the, um, I think there's two alternative futures, really, for conservative evangelicalism in England. Um, the review that's just been published made the recommendation that there should be um, a situation. It's so bad. The, the management and the cover-up 
and the mishandling of the Jonathan Fletcher abuse scandal by, by people who were mentored by him or John Smythe has been so bad um, and so catastrophic that actually the review said people need to stand down from ministry. Now, that may happen. The review's only been published two days ago. It may well be that the senior leaders of the Conservative Angelic constituency stand down from ministry. I think that if they do do that, if they actually accept are humble enough to accept the recommendations of the review, then God may actually use that as a key to unlock the door to spiritual revival in England. You know, we are doing terribly as a nation, Christian-wise, at the moment. Yeah. We need God to save us. Um, the UN ministry has always said we want to save England, you know, bring the gospel to England. That's always been the strapline of, of many of our ministries. It may well be that what God wants to see is our leaders uh, humble themselves to step away from power and influence because they have commissioned an independent review and they've been told what to do. And now they have to decide whether or not to do that. I think the alternative future is if they don't do that, I think, um, well, I mean, I'm reminded of the George Herbert quote, uh, God's mill grinds slow but sure. I think, I think this is a watershed moment for conservative mm -hmm. evangelicals in England. If, if the leaders of our constituency who claim to know how to teach the Bible better than anybody else, if they are not willing to take this opportunity to humble themselves before God and stand down, then I think that God will just quietly and in a painful way let all spiritual blessing just fade away and our nation will be left with no spiritual light. And humanly speaking, it's easy to see that second scenario developing. Um, I mean, the, the Roman Catholic Church, I think it's the, you know, as with the Watergate issue, it was the cover-up and it was the failure to act decisively. It was the, the appearance of wanting to protect the brand rather than deal with the problem that has, mm. you know, I've got some good friends in the Catholic Church and, and they feel their moral witness is utterly hamstrung by what the institution has done over the last 10, or not done, better way of putting it, over the last 10, 15, 20 years. I think you're absolutely correct that the leadership on this has to come from the top and it's time for, you know, for the leaders to take uh, responsibility. Couple more questions before we close, Peter. One of them is, and 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 this, I do not wish to be appearing to belittle the independent report at all. But for me, as a churchman, that issue of, you know, when do you bring an independent body in to investigate? Because on the one hand, the church is meant to to run the church. On the other hand, you can't have the brotherhood investigating the brotherhood. And it seems to me it's it's difficult. We don't want every every situation where every time somebody has a beef in the church, you've got to bring in independent investigators. On the other hand, when the leadership is so implicated in the problem, you can't have the brotherhood investigating the brotherhood. Where do you think, I mean, it probably isn't even a one size fits all, but what issues do you think church churches should be bearing in mind, uh, either as congregations or as denominations, when these kind of things come up? I'm, I'm not an expert. I'm just a church minister, but um, I have had numbers of victims approach me over the last couple of years just for low-level pastoral support and friendship. And my, my observation and suggestion, as an amateur in that sense, is that you don't need to be seeking independent reviews every time there's a dispute or every time there is sin in a church. You don't even have to every time there's sin in a church leader. I think that 
independent reviews are valuable, particularly when there has been egregious, prolonged situations of abuse that involve a power differential. Because what happens there is that the whole church gets groomed and damaged and distorted so that nobody in the church can really see anything clearly. And in that context, you need somebody from outside to speak clearly into your situation. And that's what's happened with Emmanuel Church and actually the constituency of conservative evangelicals. And we've had to say, we've had a man at the center of our constituency who's taught us ways of doing ministry that actually were abusive, were designed to hide his abuse. And therefore, we can't see clearly. We need somebody to speak into our situation. And that's what's happened. 318 professional safeguarding people have spoken into the situation and they've given their recommendations. And, and the thing is, you have to accept them because you can't see clearly. You know, if you say, no, we're not going to do those things, we're not going to stand down. What you're saying is, well, we, we couldn't see clearly enough, but, but we're not going to do what we've been told people who have eyesight. So that would be my observation. And the other thing, just to, you know, before I have some closing comments, um, what can parents and friends better do to protect those who are being abused? You know, are there things that you look back as you're reading this report, as you're talking to the victims, think, man, if somebody had done that or, or if that thing had been in place, maybe this mess could have been lessened or, or even in individual cases avoided entirely? Well, it's very clear when you read the reviews, which, you know, will be linked to with this podcast, it's very clear that, that there was over a long period of time, you know, loyalty to friends and to an institution led many, many people to not report to the appropriate authorities and that, and that allowed abuse. And, and in the case of John Smythe, death to occur. Um, so I think that we have to question our loyalties and be, be willing to seek external help when it's needed. But there are good resources coming to the church. You know, uh, there are good books out there. You know, people like Wade Mullen, I was reading recently, you know, his, his book talks about, you know, the when you have that sense that there's something wrong, something not right, you know, don't just squeeze it away because the man who's talking to you is very powerful or very rich or has a massive church. You know, um, I think teaching and encouraging people to seek counsel and to trust their initial judgment can be a helpful start and, and educate yourself. I think that's the key thing, you know, read some of the great books that are coming out, Diane Lamberg's resources, her YouTube videos, you know, watch them and ponder and pray. Well, thanks for that, Peter. This has been a very helpful, but very sobering discussion. And, and before we close, I, I want to say a couple of things. First of all, I want to extend thanks to, uh, the men and women who were involved in this investigation, to, to the victims who've come forward and, and to those who took their testimonies down and produced such a thorough report. It was emotionally draining just reading the report. And I remember reading earlier uh, earlier accounts of the Smythe abuse at one time and you know, having to put it down at points and, and just go away and do something else because it's just heartbreaking and unbearable to read this stuff for the men and women involved in in this investigation and indeed for the the teams who do this every day just extend our thanks to you encourage our listeners to pray for the people who do this work they you know it must be very hard not to become very jaded and very cynical about the gospel when you're having to wade through this kind of stuff all the time and then again to return to where we started uh, to the victims if you are a victim if you know a victim encourage them to seek help 
Uh, there is no shame in being a victim. The shame should attach to the perpetrators and to the victimizers. So just to encourage you to, to seek help, we're going to put up some resources on the webpage. We're going to link to the reports if you want to, to read them. Uh, and uh, maybe we can try to get hold of, of Wade Mullen's book uh, as a giveaway. Uh, go to our website and see if we've, we've managed to achieve that. Um, all that remains is for me to, to thank Pete for uh, his very thoughtful uh, and sober uh, and, and somber reflections upon the situation. Uh, thanks for joining us, Pete. We will be sure to pray for you and indeed for all those involved in this very difficult situation at this time. We would encourage our listeners, please visit our website. You can find resources on this program and indeed other podcasts uh, and other links there. If while you're on our website, you feel led, please make a donation. We are a, a listener-supported podcast. Please feel free to make a donation. In the meantime, uh, all that is left is for me to wish you all well, to ask you to pray for those uh, we've talked about today and to look forward to being with you next Wednesday. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. For more on topics like this, visit mortificationofspin.org, where you can find other articles by Carl and Todd, browse the archive of past episodes, and make a donation. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. The Davenant Institute seeks to retrieve the wisdom of classical Protestantism to renew and build up the contemporary church. Through publications, events, and courses, they equip lay people, pastors, scholars, and Christian educators by connecting them with the theological, ethical, and cultural riches of Protestants' past. Through their online program, Davenant Hall, and their residential study center, Davenant House, they provide two graduate-level degree programs in classical Protestantism and also welcome anyone taking one-off courses in theology church history, philosophy, and more. Online classes are taught by expert scholars in two-hour weekly Zoom sessions over 10 weeks from just $149 per class. Next term's courses include the Reformation and the Modern World, Unlocking the Book of Romans, Essence and Attributes of God, and many more. Spring term courses begin April 12th. Find out more at davenantinstitute.org and on Facebook and Twitter.